Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, come now and grow our faith. Come and deepen our hope and strengthen our love. And come and water within each of us the desire to be your faithful family forever. Amen. Well, this morning what I'd like to try and do is offer offer a, a macro worldview, if you like, a macro worldview of humanity, um, humanity's history. Um, the benefit of a, of a macro view is uh, you can see the whole. The drawback of a macro view is an oversimplification. You miss out the detail. So I'm going to offer you an oversimplified overview of my understanding of the world and human history. And then we'll circle back at the end to pick up on the scripture that we've just heard. So if we start in the beginning, Genesis. Genesis is a, a counter story. It's a counter story. It's a story that's countering another story, a dominant story, a story that says this is how the world is and this is who people are. And Genesis comes along and says, no, 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 you got it wrong. The dominant story is incorrect. Uh, here's a counter story. And that dominant story was a story of division, of segregation into hierarchies, and domination and violence. And that's what the story said, this is how the world is. And Genesis comes along and says, no, that's not how the world is, and that's not who we are. And then tells the counter story uh, around who we are. And if I understand the story correctly, it suggests to us that human beings are made up of three parts. Three parts. Um, we are who we are as a result of where we come from, according to Genesis. So where do we come from? We come from God, right? The beyond, the, the more of life, the mystery of life, which we've come to call God. We come from God and we bear God's image. In other words, there is part divine with us, within us, all of us here, the spark of the divine, if you like, the sacred, the worthiness, preciousness, the moreness of all of us. But according to the story, we also from the soil, that this creator God takes us from the soil and forms an earth creature from the soil. So we, we part soil, we part divine, part soil. And then 
then out of this earth creature, this creator God takes a rib and fashions another. <laughs> and we learn that we're not only from God, we're not only from the soil, but we are from each other. That's the counter story. We f who we are is who we are from. God, soil, other, neighbor. Therefore, according to this counter story, we are, as we've heard in the prayers, completely interconnected with the entire fabric of life and interdependent on that entire fabric of life that we contribute towards and benefit from. And as a result of knowing now who we are, because we know from where we come, we are instructed to live in a particular way. To live justly, mercifully, and humbly. Because if we are interdependent and interconnected with all of life, then to honor that, to protect it, to enable it to really flourish, then those are the three things we need to do. Justice, mercy, humility. With It's interesting, over my years, I've always placed greater emphasis on justice and mercy. I've come more recently to see that perhaps it all begins with work, walking humbly with God. It's an interesting phrase, do justice, love mercifully, walk humbly with God. There's something there. Never forget that you, never forget that you are not God. The moment you start behaving like you are God, you will upset the interconnected web of life. The moment you treat some as God and some as less, then you upset the web of life, the interconnection. Live humbly, making sure that you know that you are no better than any other, and then you will live justly and mercifully. So, that's the counter story that Genesis offers, and the rest of the Bible is a document of, of people trying to honor that story, learn it and explore it and honor it. But now what happens? That incredible insight by Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There, there, are few, there are few greater insights into the human condition than that single sentence. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I love this, this kind of hesitation in the beginning. Tends to. But then moves from that to absolute power corrupts absolutely. Very clear now, the next part of the sentence. So let's ask ourselves why. Why would that be? Why does power tend to corrupt? How does power tend to corrupt? And how is it that absolute power corrupts absolutely? 
I want to suggest that when that power corrupts by giving whoever is empowered tends to give whoever is empowered a false sense of superiority a false sense of superiority and if we act on that false sense of superiority it may lead to absolute power which will then lead to absolute corruption how so to the extent that i live into my false sense of superiority at the same time i live into the false sense of your inferiority they go together whoever i feel superior to i i deem them inferior in other words i i have less regard for them less respect for them and what happens when we do not re respect somebody what what's the one thing that happens when we do not respect somebody there's a saying i don't listen to anyone i don't respect that's how power corrupts power corrupts in so far as we stop listening to another an absolute power corrupts absolutely because the only one i listen to is myself that's why a couple of weeks ago when we looked at jesus's conflict resolution um the aim of jesus conflict resolution is not agreement not to get to agreement with your enemies or people you're in conflict with no for jesus it's getting to a place of listening he says if your enemy listens to you you've regained them not agree because listening enables understanding understanding enables compassion namely mercy mercy enables justice and justice leads to peace listening understanding compassion mercy justice peace conflict resolution according to jesus all right so i've i've outlined a, a counter story who we are is where we from god soil neighbor all interconnected therefore we must live humbly mercifully justly but what happens is power corrupts how we stop listening all right that's a broad framework what i'd like to do now is try and give some universal examples of that and i'm going to use a familiar word it seems that when power corrupts because we stop listening the result of that is separation from the one we're not listening to the result is separation from the one we're not listening to which then enters into a death spiral i don't listen to you i don't have regard or respect for you so i don't listen to you 
and I separate from you, because that's what happens as a result of not listening. When I, when I separate from you, there's a distance between you and I, and within that distance, fear and suspicion take root, which makes me more nervous about you, and so I, I need more power to live securely at a distance with you. And so the death spiral begins. Fear, distance, more power, more power, fear, etc. A word we have in this country for that, we named it apartheid, separateness. So let me now speak about the multitudes of apartheids, as I see it. It seems that the original apartheid, which I'm going to suggest all of us have been born into, but maybe not. I certainly have. Is the apartheid between humanity and the more than human life. Humanity and more than human life. When I say more than human life, I'm talking about the natural world. You and I have grown up in an apartheid world between humanity and the rest of life. You and I have grown up in a world, the same, of human supremacy. Human supremacy. But somehow we've been raised to believe that humans are superior. I certainly have been raised like that. Everything about my upbringing, from the economy to the education, from religion, you name it, has affirmed humanity's superiority. To the, to the soil, to the water, to the air, to the lizard, to the mountain, to the goat, animals, all of creation. Human supremacy. Christendom largely has killed off those people who lived in unity with the more than human world. Um, Christendom called them pagans, pagans, and killed them. A genocidal war against indigenous peoples who would see the river as their mother and the mountain as their father and the tree as their sister and brother. We killed them. And they lived with a unity that when you chop down the tree, there was something of chopping a limb off. They could feel it. I don't feel it. I can't feel it. Because I've been raised in an apartheid world between humanity and the so-called natural world. I'm going to postulate a theory now. When did all that go wrong? You see, perhaps... And I just share this as a theory with you. You can go home and think about it and wrestle with it. When, when human beings had less power, 
It resulted in them listening to the natural world because their survival depended upon it. But the moment when humanity acquired power that could set them free from listening to the natural world, it was at that point they could have less regard and respect for the natural world and therefore stop listening to the natural world. An example. Maybe when the compass was invented. Maybe when the compass was invented, people could look over here instead of at the stars. Maybe when, when steam engines were developed, which for the first time would mean that you could go upstream. <laughs> upstream. You didn't have to listen to the power of the river any longer. You could counter the power of the river with a power greater than the power of the river. Before that, sailors would have to honor the wind and set their sails to the wind and go with the tides. They would have to be absolutely geniusly in touch with the natural world to survive, to get anywhere. But as their power grew, they could stop listening. Now, that apartheid between human beings and all, that's in my blood. I don't know about you. I get it in my head. But the fact is that when a tree is cut down, I do not feel it. So I don't even know that I've been born and raised in that apartheid world. I have no clue. I'm completely oblivious to it. That's the, the primary, I believe, apartheid. Now, Christendom has supported that apartheid, which doesn't come as a surprise to us because there's always a religious narrative that will underpin all the apartheids that says you will have dominion over. And we take that one line. It's always just one or two lines of scripture that you need to use to support apartheid. We take that one line, dominion over creation, and we use that as justification for our domination. Okay, so the first apartheid is human supremacy. The second, if the first was nearly all of humanity, the second is, well, half of humanity, which is male supremacy. Right? Male supremacy. Where you've got basically 49% of the world's population dominating 51% of the world's population. And uh, in other words, they take their power, right? And you have less regard for less respect for, and you do not have to listen, therefore. And there's a religious narrative that underpins it, that says you are the head of the household. You must keep quiet. There's an instruction. We're not going to listen to you. 
that false sense of superiority of being male then is written into law, endorsed by religion, written into economics, etc., politics, blah, 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 blah. And we grow up in a world like that, and it's very difficult to even know that we're in it because it's all we've ever known. Together with that male supremacy, you have adult supremacy, adult supremacy and and husband supremacy around widows, widows and orphans. Can you see the different layers? The next supremacy, human supremacy, male supremacy, just a kind of a nationalistic supremacy. Nationalistic supremacy. So we're talking empires, but we're also talking tribes. All right? While the empires are happening there in Europe, don't worry, there are tribal wars happening everywhere over here, okay? And, and, and nationalism, right, national kind of or tribal supremacy is based pretty much on military invention, military invention, okay? So the short assegai, that, that works. Or the invention of gunpowder, that works. And whoever, or the, the horse and chariot, the bow and arrow, whatever the, the development in the military gave one group the power to no longer listen to another group. And then, obviously, it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because with the barrel of the gun, you can go and acquire more stuff, right? Because military and money have to go together because it's expensive to build spears. So you've got to kind of acquire more and more and, and you... You get your empire, okay. Underneath that, of course, is the god of violence that helps you win all your, all, your, all your battles. You get your scriptures from there. Always there's a scriptural story that underpins the apartheid between your nation and another nation. That somehow on this day, God was on your side as opposed to their side. And victory proves that God was on your side. Might is right. And then once you've won, you develop the rules, etc., in your favor, which then perpetuates the thing. Then we have religious supremacy. And obviously, Christendom uh, for the last 2,000 years has been the, the supreme example of Christian supremacy, of religious supremacy, namely Christianity. And if you happen to be Christian in a Christian place, you get perks. Yes, you do. You get perks. And if you're not, hmm, problems. And so you divide the world then into saved and unsaved. Those going to heaven, those going to hell, etc., etc. And uh, baptism is a nice favoring thing, etc. All right. Then we get colonial supremacy, which is a kind of a morphed empirical empire. Uh, supremacy, but now it's it's like empire with legs. Empire decides to go walk about, travel. That's what it does. It expands, and then takes what it finds, plunders, takes back home. So colonial supremacy. Followed on from colonial supremacy, you can guess, white supremacy. Only flows on after colonial supremacy. 
We know white supremacy well. We've lived through it. We live in it. Then we're not finished there. We get to kind of heterosexual supremacy, cisgender supremacy, all these supremacies all have their time, they make laws, they make rules, and they underpin it with religion all the time to secure power and privilege for some. So that's, that's my simplified worldview of the world. It's, it's made up of multitudes of apartheids. Now, I've, I've mentioned them separately, but here's the thing. They, you know the word, they intersect with each other. So there's always been a supremacy of the rich over the poor. Now add that to patriarchy. Male supremacy, rich supremacy, white supremacy. Bring them all together now. And you begin to see things get very, very fixed in the world of how the world is. How do they perpetuate? Two reasons. One, as Upton Sinclair said, another statement that is profound about the human condition, he says this, it's difficult to get a person to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. So why doesn't these, why does this keep on perpetuating? Because the people with power and privilege are not stupid. They realize just before they're about to lose their privilege and power, you know what they do? They offer some of it to their opposition. Now the opposition come in, and the moment they get some of the privilege and power, they're now benefiting from the system that once hurt them, now benefits them, and it's very hard for them to understand something that's going against their salary. That's why union leaders sometimes end up in management, like after. You, you can buy them off, pay them off, because this is true about the human condition. As soon as we start benefiting from the system, we lose our, our fervent zeal to take on the system. But the other reason is, maybe more complicated, if that's possible, it's that we become dependent on systems for our survival that are killing us. Let me say that again. We become dependent upon systems for our survival that are killing us. The obvious example, fossil fuel. Which one of us here is not dependent on fossil fuel? Which one of us here is not dependent on plastic? It's killing us, but we're all dependent on it. We're dependent on a way of life that's for our survival that's killing us. And the moment we try and give it up, it feels like we are dying, so we go back to it, just like the addict. So for those two reasons, these apartheids of supremacy, multitudes of them, are very stubborn. Now, each one of the supremacies that I've mentioned has been underpinned by an understanding of Christianity, every one of them. And therefore, what I believe should be the primary responsibility of the Christian church throughout the world today, our primary vocation, should be to tell the world 
that we have been wrong in offering the world these narratives of validating each apartheid. We should confess. The best thing the Christian church can do today is to confess our sin. That's, that's the best thing we can do for the world. Confess our sin of how we have validated all these apartheids, all these false supremacies, so that we can start listening again. Now we come to the gospel reading. Let's see how Jesus does this. So if you read the chapter, chapter 22, Matthew, he's been peppered with questions. Remember last week, both religious and political came and questioned him on taxes. And then uh, into reading between last week and this week was others questioning on the religious issue of resurrection. Today, religious leaders come to him and say, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus, Jesus knows that they, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to corner him in an either-or. Um... I mean, it's petty, it's childish, it's trying to score points. It's a bit like if you've heard interviews on what's happening in Gaza. I can tell you now the question that every radio journalist or TV journalist will ask their guest if they're from a particular side. You know the question. So do you condemn what Hamas did? And, and, and the moment they, they say anything other than yes or no, no, you're not answering my question. Answer my question. Answer my question. Do you condemn? They, they, they're cornering. They're cornering their guest into a yes and no. All right? When a more mature interviewer would ask, tell me, what is your understanding of October the 7th? What is your understanding? How do you make sense of that? What would you say about that? I'm interested in your view instead of just trying to corner you into, because if you say yes, then, it's, then you're that, and if you say no, well, then you're that. You see, Jesus is wise to this stuff. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Listen to his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. There's pause. Jesus was the master of pause. And the second is like it, says Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The little words is like it, is sheer genius of Jesus. Genius is like it. The second is like it. Well, how is it like it? As in, it's also the greatest commandment? It's like it. 
Jesus just said, here's the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. So is Jesus saying it's also the first and greatest commandment? It's like it. Hmm. So maybe it's not second after all. Maybe the second is like the first. It is first. Or it's an expression of, interpretation of the first. Yes, there's the first. Now let me give you an expression and an an incarnation of it, if you like. Third, the two commandments are really one commandment. As in, they like each other. The two is really one. As in, one can't exist without the other. As in. How can we say that we love God who we have not seen and yet hate our brother and sister who we have seen? So there are layers here now. You cannot love God, according to Jesus, without loving your neighbor. Number one. The second layer. You cannot love your neighbor without knowing who your neighbor is. And thirdly, therefore, you cannot love yourself without loving your neighbor because Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say as much as you love yourself or like you love. It's not a comparison. He's saying expand your understanding of self to include, to embrace the interconnected, interdependent other. So that in actual fact, loving them is loving you. And you cannot love yourself unless you're loving them. Jesus spent so much time trying to help people understand who their neighbor is. Your neighbor is like the good Samaritan. In other words, your enemy is your neighbor. Now he tells us, You are part of your neighbor, and your neighbor is part of you. Let me close with a therefore. It seems that Jesus resisted all forms of apartheid, separateness. He kept on trying to show people that you are a part of the other and the other is a part of you. I don't think we will ever be able to love our neighbor until we begin to truly see our neighbor as part of ourselves. How else will wars cease? They will not cease until we realize that when we drop a bomb on someone, we're dropping a bomb on ourselves. So where does it leave us? 
And again, this may be a simplification, forgive me, but it might carry some truth as well. When we ask to live life, I think the questions that Jesus would like us to ask is, when something's being done, when decisions are being made, can we ask this question? Does it benefit some or does it benefit all? Just a simple question. Who does this benefit? Does it benefit some or does it benefit all? If it only benefits some, it's not of Christ. The second question, when does it do the benefit? Does it only benefit now and not the future? Then it's not of Christ. So the decisions that we make, we need to make with the knowledge of a future that will exist when we're not here. So we make decisions not only for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of all, and that includes not only now, but the future. And our four-year or five-year election cycle makes that very, very difficult for a politician to think beyond the next election. And so the structures of society are, are arranged against us having the future in mind. And they're not just now or later, but here or everywhere. And so we begin to broaden, expand our frameworks to include all, to include all time and all place so that we can begin to, to listen, I guess, more broadly. Final thing. Jesus let power go out of him. That's how he healed the world. We need to learn how to let power go out of us. Then we will heal the world. Jesus couldn't be bought, so he was crucified. To the extent that you and I can't be bought, we will also go through some form of crucifixion. But we know the story doesn't end there. Let's be quiet, and if there's anything helpful or truthful in these words, may they help us to think about life and uh, take root in our life. Let's be quiet. Living God, remind us that we are from you, that we are from the soil, that we are from each other. And so help us to walk humbly with you.
to live mercifully, to feel the pain of others as our own. And then to structure life justly for the sake of all. Amen.